0: Welcome to For the Love of Yoga, the podcast series where we explore yoga, Vedanta, Tantra, and other schools of spiritual philosophy so that we might live more meaningful lives. For more episodes of For the Love of Yoga, visit us at patreon.com slash yogawithnish. May these words serve you. And today we're talking about something very special, something very dangerous, so to speak, something very easily misunderstood, and that is the ideal of continence or brahmacharya, celibacy, sexual control, restraint of the sensory indulgences, the keeping in check of the animal spirit, call it what you will, this is the one facet of spirituality that is perhaps responsible for some of the most egregious ills of humanity. And yet it seems an indispensable part of almost every mystical tradition in the world. Whether you're a Dominican monk, a Franciscan monk, whether you're a Sufi dervish, um, and most certainly whether you're a yogi, this ideal has always been um, championed as necessary to a successful spiritual life. So we're going to explore today all the facets of that ideal. And this is for Ryan since yesterday, no, last week, we were having a discussion about renunciation and in our hour together, we didn't have nearly enough time to cover this brahmacharya. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Um, Two disclaimers before we begin. The first is, especially given the nature of this topic, and especially given the deeply entrenched Catholic guilt that we find here in the West, I find it necessary to first point out that the yogic mind is not a moralistic mind. We, in Sanskrit, barely have words for evil or bad. Our closest thing to moral censure is avidya, ignorance. And the earliest translations of that Greek New Testament has the word sin in Greek as to miss the mark, to fail to understand something, as opposed to its current moralistic and, uh, you know, almost condescending flavor. So the first thing to note here is that the yogic mind is not a supernatural mind. Although it talks about gods and demons, it only talks about them as, to to a degree, metaphors. Um, it is more interested in the inner psychic forces of humankind than it is in making any kind of metaphysical statement. And that is to say, it doesn't really have a concept of evil. Yes, there is, you know, the word adharma, which means irreligious. There is perhaps the word duratma, which means misguided soul. Yet still, these have connotations of errors or intellectual mistakes, a lack of insight, not a fundamental failing of character. So this is a very important disclaimer to make for tonight. The yogic mind does not consider any of what I'm about to say a value judgment, moralistic statement. Um, That is to say, if you were to fall down the stairs, you don't call gravity a demon. (laughs) And so the yogic mind is a mind that is more interested in cause and effects, more interested in the science of salvation than it is in any moralizing, you know, enough with the moralizing. That's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer is the same disclaimer as with every philosophy talk. um, We don't like dogma. And we don't like unquestioned uh, assumptions. Something is only true if it is true in your own experience of life. So whatever I say today must check out in your own perceptual apparatus, um, in your own reasoning. So if something I'm saying doesn't quite stand the test of reason, I invite you to unmute at any point during this lecture um, and stop me be like, I don't know about that niche, that doesn't sound quite right, and we'll debate it, you know. So as far as possible, let's maintain the heart of Indian philosophy, and that's debate, um, discourse, and let's keep this an open conversation. Of course, at the end of the lecture, we'll truly open it up and have a satsang and talk about anything. Okay, those are the two disclaimers. Let's start. Last week, and Sir so Lord Chaitanya was the first to bring that religion back to the masses and that, therefore he's revered as a teacher. So let's now practice a meditation. Come into your favorite meditation seat. Be sitting cross-legged. You can be sitting in a chair. You can even be lying down. Just take a moment to align the spine and focus on the breath, you know, with these perhaps lower animal natures. And you hear such dualistic statements as wisdom with God is foolishness with the world. You hear this categorical separating of Babylon from the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is within, so what is without must be illusion. You hear this idea of Brahma Gyana, Jagat Mithya. Knowledge of God is illusion with the world. You know, so you have these kinds of dualistic oppositions. And spiritual traditions all around the world, whatever culture they find themselves in, have always stressed the importance of seeking truth and avoiding illusion. And they've always kind of tied up the world with illusion. Things aren't what they appear to be. What seems outwardly good is inwardly corrosive and vice versa. Lord of the Rings loves that, uh, that theme, right? J.R. Tolkien is quite a Christian mystic. And he loves that theme of um, the ragged, vagabond king. Not all that glitters is gold. Not all who wander is lost. Who, who wander are lost. So it reminds me of that quote from the uh, Fellowship of the Ring where Frodo meets Aragorn and he's following Aragorn. And Sam turns to him and says, Frodo, how do you know this isn't a bad guy? Why should we trust this vagabond? And Frodo turns around and says, I feel like a servant of the enemy would seem fairer, yet feel fouler. You know, so you get that kind of language all throughout Christian mysticism. And in the yogic schools, in Sankhya, it's Prakriti versus Purusha. Prakriti, nature, is a world of change. It's a world of flux. There can be no satisfaction in Prakriti you as an impermanent transcendental being cannot find satisfaction in the imminent, ever-transient world of nature. So the practice of yoga, at least according to the Sankhya philosophy, is disidentifying yourself with the body and the mind and establishing yourself in your true nature as one who stands apart from nature. Purusha. And the line in the Yoga Sutra is Tada Drashtu Svarupe Vastanam. When you achieve enlightenment, you abide in your own true nature. That is to say, you are no longer involved in the world. That's the yogic ideal. Then in non-duality, the ideal is to see the world for what it is, an illusion. What you took to be matter is nothing but empty space. What you took to be the external world of form is nothing but a trick of the imagination. All of that is a consequence of you not being established on a deep, not just an intellectual level, but on a deep intuitive level with what is actually real. And when you discover that, it's called Brahma Jnana. When you have the insight, uh, the world as it, as it is fades away. It's a dream. So the non-dualists call this maya. The Sankhya philosophers call this Prakriti. Um, The modern European philosophers call this the world of extension. Plato calls this the degenerate world of shadow. It's the firelight on the cave wall, so to speak. Um, And Christianity calls this Babylon or the world. And all of this is diametrically opposed to the ideal which in Christianity is the kingdom of heaven, which in non-duality is uh, Brahma-gyana, which in Sankhya is Purusha, um, etc. What have you. Okay, so that's generally what renunciation is. Realizing that there is something more to this world than what you see, and the only way to attain it is to renounce or give up your clinging or your attachment to what is. And all religions have this infrastructure. So with that in mind, let's talk about how people come to religion, how they come to spirituality. And usually it's through suffering. You know, that's one of the easiest doorways to spirituality. In Buddhism, it's called divine dispassion. It's where you realize with a deep finality that nothing you can experience with your five senses or your ego, to borrow Ram Dass' phrase, will ever satisfy you completely. You know, nothing you can taste, smell, touch, um, have sex with, acquire, um, impress, nothing will ever truly do it for you. It might be sweet for a few moments, but it's transient. It's fleeting. And it always seems to leave a deeper craving than was there before. So the Buddha pointed out around 530 BCE that we suffer because we cling to things that ultimately go away. We cling to relationships, possessions, and ultimately we cling to this body and mind that we, you know, hope will carry on forever. But the reality of the thing is it won't. You know, all relationships will fade away. And even if your partner doesn't pass away, your relationship changes and it stops doing for you what it did in the first three months of the honeymoon period. You know, hello, Jess. Welcome back. Welcome back. So the idea in the Shakyamuni Buddha's teaching was that you suffer because you look for permanence in a world of impermanence. Anithyam, anithyam, sarva manithyam. Changing, changing. The world is changing. Now, to go deeper into what the Buddha was talking about, he identified the root of suffering, or that is dissatisfaction, as desire. Or to translate better, karma, this clinging, this lust or craving. That's probably the best word, craving. So what is the problem with craving? Anybody who's been on like a drug trip, you know, interested in any kind of substance, is acutely aware of the trap of craving. And there are four levels of this trap. The first is that any sense gratification, whether it be a nice smell, whether it be a taste of chocolate cake, the first hour of a heroin high or an orgasm, whatever the sense gratification, it is always fleeting. So it has an inbuilt decay. It wears away. And when it goes away, Um, we're left with this craving for more. So the first problem with sense gratification is that it doesn't last. It's never really going to do it for you. The second problem is that um, you build a threshold. So, you know, in the drug circles, they call it chasing the dragon. Nothing's ever going to be as good as that first time. And so you're caught in this perpetual loop of chasing the mythical high. You know, the second time is worse than the first. The third time is worse than the second. And, you know, you work really hard to get everything right. You know, maybe if I take it at this time or I combine it with this substance or I hang out with this people when I drop the tab, like then it's going to be great. And you chase this dragon, but you know um, that your ability to enjoy diminishes. There's a diminishing returns. That's the second problem. The third problem is that um, sense pleasures often create in the body painful imbalances. So in the case of desiring chocolate cake, you know, the transiency of the bite causes you to have more and the more causes painful imbalances in the body that's experienced as displeasure or dis-ease. So at the end of the day, when you do your cost-benefit analysis, you know, you're writing in your logbook, it turns out that the pleasure costs more in pain than it did in the pleasure. Now, the fourth, and this is the most pernicious, the fourth trap of sense gratification is it creates an addiction or a cycle of uh, being chained to that craving. So generally, the more you indulge it, the more you need, the more you want it, and the more of an ability that craving has to override your sense of agency. And there is something deeply distressful on an innate human level, about losing your agency in this way. So surrendering your free will and your independence, becoming overwhelmed by some uh, upsurge of desire or craving, seems to be rather debilitating to the human spirit. Maybe because you know yourself to be authentically a free being. In tantra, we say swa tantra, uh, you know, svantara, free, completely completely free. And yet, here you are, chasing your own tail. Something about that strikes you as paradoxical and eerie. So this pleasure trip, in whatever form it takes, seems to have these four traps. And after a while, you start to notice this and you start to desire to get free. So I will phrase today an operational definition for spirituality. Whether that's the path of yoga, whether that's any other path, spirituality is the attempt To achieve more freedom, you know, enlightenment is the most radical freedom there is. And freedom from what? Freedom from bondage. What's the bondage? The bondage to the senses. In Advaita Vedanta, we say it's your identification with your body and mind that causes all your pain. Your body dies, your mind, as a repository for your personality, is susceptible to all sorts of things defamation, you know, defeat disillusionment, all of these kind of debilitating thoughts, all of that happens in the mind. Disease and death happens in the body. You suffer insofar as you think yourself to be the body, you think yourself to be the mind. The solution then is to realize that you are not the body, nor are you the mind. You are the witness of those two things. You are the conscious awareness. That's kind of a redundant statement, conscious awareness. Rather, you are the awareness in which those experiences of bodiness and mindness happen. So through a series of meditative disciplines, you come to internalize that I am not the body, I am not the mind, and thereby so too your craving, your fear, your aversion to death and disease, your aversion to blame and disrepute, all of that fades from you. That's freedom. You know, insofar as you haven't detached yourself from your body and your mind, you are not free. You know, you are a victim to death and you are more than that, a victim to your sense pleasures. So that's essentially what the core of the, let's say, yogic um, ideal is. Freedom, freedom from bondage. I like how Swami Vivekananda phrases it, whether by the path of insight, whether by devotion, whether by psychic control, whatever way you can find, become free. Get there as quickly as possible, you know. So if you're a Bhakti yoga practitioner, Advaita Vedantin, Jnana Yoga practitioner, Kashmiri Shaivite, it doesn't matter. Just get free. <laughs> so that's kind of the um, recap of last week's renunciation discussion. So let's turn now to Brahmacharya. On the path to enlightenment one of the precursors or the preparatory disciplines among many is resisting the um resisting the sex uh what do you call it sex um drive this is dangerous you know because it's not repressing i i use the word resisting sparingly the yogic solution to the sex drive is not repression suppression or subjugation Have you seen the tarot card strength in the Rider-Waite deck? There's a beautiful angel in a white dress and she isn't killing the lion. You know, there's a red lion and in alchemy, which by the way, a lot of the language that you hear in alchemy, you will find in very old text by the Rajasayas, a sect of yogis who are interested in mercury and sulfur and the chemical ways of achieving immortality. You know. So these alchemical ideas, they do have their roots in some of these yogic practices. But anyway, as they appear in Western alchemy, you have these two things. You have the white eagle representing purity or Plato's world of pure form or what have you. And then you have the red lion representing the body or nature or bestiality. Now, a very immature religion will repress, kill, and defeat the lion. You know. And you might notice the trap. Aversion is just another side of attachment. Aversion and attachment are the same thing, experienced in different ways. Both are a fixation on that thing. You know, the two people who are most obsessed with food, obese people, anorexic people. The two people that are most obsessed with sex, hedonistic indulgence people, and uh, the incel Catholic priest who, you know, is repressing it. You know, so these two people are both as obsessed with the thing. It's just that they're experiencing that obsession in different ways. One is through running towards it. The other is from, from running away from it. You know, so at this juncture of this talk, make no mistake, aversion and attachment are two sides of the same coin. If you resist it, if you hate it, if you fight it, that's no better than running towards it, clinging to it, being addicted to it. So that must be said. So notice in the tarot card, the eight. Uh, yes, yes, Jess, you're getting, you're getting to it. Adjacently acknowledging it. I'll even go further. Lovingly accept it, but not be mastered by it. You know, embrace it with love, humor, and compassion, but don't let it run the reins uh, or, or take the reins, so to speak. Now, if you look at that card, the eight in the major arcana of the tarot, any modern deck, you'll see this beautiful angel in a white dress gently, very gently, very lovingly closing the mouth of the lion. How beautiful. Remember, the red lion represents the sex drive. It represents not just the sex drive, which I'm going to break down for you in a bit. What is the sex drive, according to yoga? We'll break it down. But it's not just the sex drive. It's any drive towards a sense gratification outside of you any desire to smell a smelly, a sweet smelling thing. Oh, Lauren. Hello. Yes. Yes. Welcome. Take what you can, Lauren. I'm happy to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Now she's closing it with such love. She's not smashing it or killing it because that would be counterproductive. After all, it's part of her you know, and she's lovingly controlling it. There is a connection between her and it. If you notice, if you look at the card closely, there is a wreath or a, a, a vine of roses that connects the two of them. There is a link, like it or not, there is a link between your body and your spirit, between Purusha and Prakriti. The Samkhya people, you know, were not able to show what that link was, Um, But in tantra and non-duality, we say, no, look at the link. You cannot ignore that there is a link between that. So how to reconcile it? Lovingly, with a lot of tenderness, we control the sex desire. We do not destroy it, repress it, or suppress it. How to do that then? And better yet, why would you want to do that? (laughs) So hopefully thus far in the talk, um, you're sort of getting a sense of the... um, what do you call it, the dead end of sense gratification. If you live for sense gratification, um, you know that there's a lot of dissatisfaction involved. You know, so one of the ways people get into spirituality is by experiencing that dissatisfaction. You know, your spirituality is really not very mature until you hit that point of dispassion. You know, because before that point, you know what's going to happen to you? You will inadvertently co-opt your spirituality for material ends. You know, this used to happen. I used to like to shop. I like to buy stuff. I have a son in Taurus and a uh, rising in Taurus. You know, I like stuff. And uh, I used to buy stuff. And then I became more serious about my meditation. And now I was still buying stuff. I was just buying statues and rosaries and books. And, you know, my materialism hadn't changed except in appearance. You know, where before I was buying, maybe some people buy Ferraris. Now they're buying the expensive rosary with the Bodhi seeds from the tree that the original Buddha sat under. They're paying for really expensive courses. This is your second 500-hour teacher training program, bruh you know, (laughs) how many accolades you need to collect before you can convince everyone that you truly are spiritual. So you'll notice before you reach divine dispassion, there is always a tendency to use your spirituality for material ends. You know, whether that's, Uh, appearing cool so that you can get some sexual gratification or some kind of ego power gratification or material gratification in the form of money. After all, how many gurus are there out there that demand a significant portion of your salary before they will start to teach you, you know, and they will justify it in all sorts of ways like, oh, you need to show me that you value this spiritual business, you need to sacrifice something, you know, so conveniently, I will take that money, and I'll put it in my bank, and that will be the proof of your spirituality. You know, how many yogis are there along the banks of the Ganga right now? And I, you know, I'm fortunate in my life to have personally seen some of these charlatans. You know, unfortunately, in America, you don't get to see with your own eyes, a lot of these miracles. But any trip to India, especially during the Kumbha Mela, you know, it's a festival we have every 12 years, uh, where it's a gathering of sadhus and spiritual seekers, and they come, and you'll notice people performing miracles. You know, I have in my own life seen people pick up cars with their penis. It's not so hard to imagine. I mean, after some practicing, you can slow your heartbeat, you can slow your breath, all of you are practicing yoga, all of you are experiencing extraordinary physical feats. It's not so hard to believe that if you practice more intensely, you'll be able to achieve even more extraordinary physical feats. And that has been demonstrated. Yogis stop their heart, they stop their brain, you know, they lift things with fingers and other appendages, um, they can create smells, like you see this a lot in India. And you often see these people using those what we call siddhis or powers for material ends, you know, for a following or whatever. Now, this is because these people haven't yet internalized the idea that sense pleasures won't do it for them. And the mistake that we most of us make is that like this much didn't do it. So this must, this much might do it, <laughs> you know, so we, we seek and we seek. Now, the best thing that can happen to you in your spiritual journey is to get to the point where you become so jaded with the world. It's called uh, in German weltschmerz, world wariness, you know, in Buddhism, it's called divine dispassion. But it's this idea of finishing with the world, so to speak. It's, it, this is the most mature form of spirituality. And we're all where we are on the journey. You know, where you are is exactly where you need to be. Some of you are here to heal. You know, some of you are here for physical purposes, you know, to heal the body. Some of you are here to heal the mind, you know. But in yoga, we say, yes, yes, that's part of the journey. But ultimately, the maturation of the journey comes when you achieve this divine dispassion this insight that the world won't do it for you. And you know, some of us achieve this insight by inference. If this much didn't do it, I don't think this much will. So I'm going to stop striving to get this much. You know, some of us can do that. Um, I often have this analogy I can never say it. analogy, a- a- analogy. I have, this anal- anal- <laughs> I have this example, okay, metaphor. Um, you go into a ramen shop, and it's the first time that you you enter the shop, and you look at the menu, and there's all these different ramen bowls that you can enjoy. You're like, "Oh, this one and this one, Tonkatsu," and you know you're excited. So you pick a bowl and you start to eat it. About uh, you know halfway through, you, you realize it's like not good for you. It's like heavy and you, you don't like it. Now you have two options. I mean, you paid for it. You might as well finish the whole thing, right? So you eat the whole thing and you feel worse than you ever were before and you leave and you come back tomorrow and now you want a different bowl of ramen. But some people don't need to finish the bowl. You know, some people are able to take two bites and be like, I don't really want this ramen, you know? Yes, yes, Jess, we're going to get there actually because, um... Yeah, it's pretty heavy stuff. I, I kind of dropped a lot on you today. <laughs> but yeah, so you enter this ramen shop and maybe you chose the fame bowl or the fortune bowl or the pleasure trip bowl or the ego trip bowl, whatever it is. Sometimes you need to finish the whole damn bowl before you realize it isn't going to feed you in the way that you want it to feed you. You know? And that's just fine. That's just fine. It takes many incarnations. And we did have a class on the reincarnation. You know, welcome, Grace, (laughs) talking about sex today. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes it takes many incarnations. You have to really finish the ramen bowl before you're like, that wasn't for me. But not always, right? Some of us are able to eat half the bowl and say, I don't need to finish this. I, I, I get it. I get the point. And so too with some of you, you're beginning to realize now through inference that you're never going to be satisfied through pleasure. You know, never going to be satisfied through power, fame, or security. You know, there's no amount of job promotions that you can have to truly feel secure. No amount of money you can have to truly feel abundant. You know, maybe maybe that's some realization that you're some of you are starting to have, and that's stopping halfway through the bowl. Now, check this. If somebody were to come into the ramen shop and they order a bowl that you ordered yesterday, you might turn to them and say, brah, you're not gonna like that bowl. I had it yesterday and it was just awful. I felt heavy and uh, it was not a good bowl. Yes, Mara, I'm getting right to that. You're way ahead of me, I love it. (laughs) Now, there are cases um, where you might tell that person don't eat the bowl. Nine out of 10 times they won't listen to you. (laughs) And that's good. You shouldn't take anything on faith. You should find out for yourself. So a person might say to you, don't eat the fame bowl. Don't eat the sensual gratification bowl. And you're like, bah, I don't believe you. It looks delicious. So you eat the whole damn thing. And then you're like, I see what you were saying. (laughs) I wish I didn't spend 12, 25 on that bowl, you know? But some people are able to eat half the bowl and be like, no, no, no. I see what you're saying. I'm going to stop eating the bowl. Some people don't even need to taste the bowl. They just have that faith, you know, and that's, that's one way to come to this. You have faith that masters exist like Jesus, like da- the, the Tao Te Ching, you, you know Lao Tzu was out there and you know Patanjali was out there and you just have this faith that if every culture seems to produce these masters and if all of them seem to be saying the same thing, then maybe there's something to it, you know, so you don't even eat the bowl. That's possible. A lot of people do that. So where are you in the ramen shop? You know, and there are no wrong answers. Some people do need to finish the bowl. And in fact, I say that's the best way. You know, if you don't finish the bowl, there might be a part of you that's always like, what if, you know, what if I finished the bowl? Maybe the next bite would have done it for me. You know, so we say often in Tantra, finish the damn bowl. Eat the whole jar of peanut butter until you realize you didn't want peanut butter. You know, <laughs> yeah, it depends on the mood, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we order another bowl just to make sure. So like this, we, in, in Buddhism, they call it, um, uh, what do you call it? Samsara, this wheel of birth and death. In Buddhism, the idea is that you get the bowl, it didn't satisfy you, you didn't learn your lesson, tomorrow you get the same damn bowl. Still didn't satisfy you, so the next day you get another bowl. Maybe this one will be different. And Einstein comes along and he's saying, Insanity is just doing the same thing you did yesterday and thinking you'll have different results. And you're like, I know, I know, but this is going to be the... So, you know, that's the game that we play. And it's fun. It's a fun game. But it's a game that you can only play for so long. Eventually, you start to become curious about the ramen shop. You look around and you start to... Um, talk to the waiters and waitresses and you start to talk to the person next to you and you're curious about this ramen shop and some people are telling you don't eat the ramen, leave. Other people are telling you eat it with relish, enjoy every bit. This is all there is to it. Ramen is life, brah. And of course, no offense to ramen. I love ramen, you know. (laughs) Don't read too much into this metaphor. (laughs) Um, But eventually, eventually, some people come to the conclusion the ramen isn't going to uh, satisfy them. So now they start to renounce. So let's now investigate what this sex drive is. It is, um, for most of us, a perceptual fact of the human experience. At some point, we all realized our nakedness in the Garden of Eden, so to speak. You know, at some point, we all felt the stirring of, of this desire towards sensual gratification, and most strongly, sexual gratification, you know. And for some of us, you know, our orality, like eating food, I, Freud was, I don't need to do any Freud for you, like, we're, our culture is very well aware of how, you know, for Freud, everything was sex, Um, Everything was an expression of this libido. But the reverse can be true too, you know. (laughs) Nothing is sex. Something deeper going on here than just sex. And that's what yoga says. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want you to know that yoga is diametrically opposed to Freud because Freud is a materialist. You know, he sees the subconscious as just a repository for complexes and he sees everything to reducing to this libido or sex, but it never bothers to tell you what it is or why it is. Yoga can give you an explanation. Yoga says the reason, I don't I don't want to say yoga says, it's not like there's an authority out there, but there are schools of this philosophy that suggest the reason you experience any kind of desire at all not just the sex drive but any kind of desire to fulfill yourself it comes from the fundamental error that you are not um, complete already yoga is not a self-help self-growth trans it's not um, a system to make you better because at the core of yoga philosophy is the understanding that you are already you always have been you always will be perfect Your enlightenment is here with you now. It's just that you're not aware of it. You know, I'm sure some of you have practiced Hatha yoga. You've done some asana. And, you know, one day you started to feel your hamstring. Before practicing asana, I know Ryan is really feeling it, but before you practiced asana, there were muscles in your body that you weren't even aware of. And then you did a little bit of asana and suddenly you felt them. They became part of your reality. It's not that those muscles suddenly were there. It's not that you acquired them through your spiritual practice. Your spiritual practice just made you aware of what was already there, what was always there, your hamstrings, (laughs) Now on a deeper level, you are already complete. You are fulfilled. You already are that which you desire. The problem is you don't know that. And in not knowing that, you feel a strange sense of incompleteness. You're hungry for something. You're craving for something, but you don't quite know what. So you're looking around the world and the world in its advertising mirage gives you a lot of things to desire, you know, get the shampoo and and, and become cool, you know, like whatever it is, Um, and you chase those things. And and that's good for a while. But then you're like, okay, okay, this isn't it. So the practice of spirituality is to turn your orientation around, to stop seeking out there and to start turning within to not to seek, by the way, you're not seeking within, you're just remembering what you are, And once you do, once you're aware of the fullness of your being, then you no longer crave things. I mean, how could you? You know, you're perfectly fulfilled, perfectly satisfied. Um, The mind and the body crave, but you don't. So I'm going to give you this operational definition for drive, any drive, sex drive or any sense gratification. The instinct to pursue an external form of gratification is an expression. Gratification. Uh, instinct to pursue an external form of gratification. I, I always like to hear the the sentence I just said because I'm like what is the drunken monkey talking about this time? What nonsense is he uh, is he spreading? <laughs> Only fools talk, right? So what is the fool saying now? <laughs> anyway, um yeah Yeah, to the point of that echo, (laughs) the operational definition for any drive is the desire to find fulfillment in some external form that arises from not knowing yourself to be pure awareness that is in of itself complete, fulfilled and whole. And now it's one thing to say to you, brah, you're fulfilled. Quite another for you to stop feeling these cravings and desires, you know. <laughs> Man does not live by bread alone, nor does he live by concepts, ideas, and dogmas. <laughs> so it's not enough to say this. You must experience this. Some of you are fortunate in that you have a very deep meditation practice. So some of you have in your meditation experienced a deep sense of pervading wholeness bliss is there but it's a bit deeper than bliss it's a feeling of being beyond the mind and beyond the body and being in something that is so much more authentic than your limited idea of who you are you know so right now you're like okay i'm nish and nish is a yoga teacher or nish is a guitar player nish likes Cheddar. He likes sharp cheddar. You know, Nish is a vegetarian. All these are labels. And if I think myself to be any of these, I will be dissatisfied. In in all modesty, I say I cannot cram this infinite mystery of Nish into the narrow confines of these labels. Every time I try to do that, I chafe a little bit. You know, I feel a little bit uncomfortable, cramped existence is claustrophobic only if you identify with your personality. So if you're so obsessed with like, okay, I need I need people to see me this way, or I need to see myself this way, am I a good person? I better do a bunch of charity because I need to convince myself that I'm good. You know, as long as you are caught in this game of establishing a personality, you will always feel claustrophobic and cramped. But if in your meditation, you manage to, even for a few moments, a few seconds, catch a glimpse of something else, only then do you become interested in spirituality. And what is spirituality but trying to figure out what you glimpsed? You know the movie The Matrix? I, I know, it's such a cliche to refer to it. In any kind of Dharma talk, <laughs> it's such a cliche to refer to The Matrix. But um, in, in, in that film, you know, in the second film, Neo is talking to the Oracle. And Neo is like, why am I here? Since the future isn't really the future, it's all happening here and now. You know, if you're interested in that statement, we had a whole talk on the illusion of time. But if everything's already happened, what's choice? Haven't I already made all the choices that I'm going to make? So why am I here talking to you now, Oracle? And she says to him, you're here for no other reason than to understand why you made the choice that you made. That's it. You're here to understand. So you have already catched a catched? caught a glimpse of that authentic, fulfilled being that you truly are, but now you're just trying to understand what it is that you glimpsed. Maybe you glimpsed it after one and a half hours of yoga, uh, asana, and you're in Shavasana, you glimpsed it. Maybe you glimpsed it on a walk along the beach one day by yourself. Maybe you were standing on your roof and you were watching a sunset. uh, Maybe you even glimpsed it eating the chocolate cake or having an orgasm. It's not unlikely. But something happened where for a moment you weren't the mind, you weren't the body, you were something else. And that something else felt more real to you than any of the other things that you thought yourself to be. So now you want to be that thing. How? Enter spiritual discipline. There is some spiritual disciplines that you need. And all of those spiritual disciplines are telling you that if you do certain things, it will take you further away from that state. And if you do other things, it will bring you closer to that state. And one of the things that these spiritual disciplines often prescribe is celibacy, continence, or at least control of the sex drive. Why? Because every time you act, you are on a, on a level of even Pavlovian conditioning, you are reaffirming and reifying a thought construct, an idea of who you are. So every time you act to fulfill a sense desire, you are reifying the idea that I am not complete. I am insufficient. I need this thing outside of me to be complete. So every time you reach for the chocolate cake, you're creating a feedback loop which keeps you entrenched in this mistaken identity as she, he, or they who crave. Do you see? It's not that sexuality or desire is bad, not far from it. It's that the pursuing of these things as a ends, you know, as a way to complete yourself, that's the trap. It's not the action. It's the desire to make that action suffi- like uh, uh, scratch the itch. Do you see? It's a subtle point. It's a subtle point. We do not demonize the chocolate cake. We do not demonize the sex drive. We merely point out the error in identifying with a sense of lack. And it's from that sense of lack that cause you to reach out, you know? Yeah. So I will come to the chats. There's some really good stuff there and I will come to it. So is it that you just have to find yourself eating chocolate cake? You can't think about wanting to have chocolate cake. You can't think about what it's going to be like after to have chocolate cake. You just are all of a sudden eating chocolate cake. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. Totally fine because it's not the thing, it's not the chocolate cake at all. You know, it's funny, there are enlightened sages who are complete hedonists. I mean, it looks that way on the surface, it looks that they're like body drinking all that stuff. I will tell you a story in a little bit that kind of captures this point very well the story of Shankaracharya. A lot of you have heard it, um, but yeah, it's not the chocolate cake, it's not the sex. It's not the thing that you're doing. It's the frame of mind that you reify in yourself when you do it. And so it's about the intent. It's about the inner experience as opposed to the thing itself. That's why last week I warned you against external forms of renunciation. In yoga, we're not interested in retreating to the Himalayan caves. You know, so you went to the Himalayas. The desires followed you there (laughs) because you're not in the world. They're in your head. This is not a world of demons and gods. There's no demon or God out there. It's all in here. So yoga says you cannot get rid of it by externally putting on a show of renunciation. And that's why celibacy can be a problem if it's done out of dogma. If you come to hate sex, as we talked about earlier, aversion is just attachment. If you come to see the act of sex as impure, you are waging psychological warfare with yourself. That will draw you into a pit of moral degradation faster than anything else, as, you know, undoubtedly you've, you've experienced in the past few years, especially with some of the controversies in these monasteries and all that. So it's not this external renunciation of sex. That's kind of the subtlety of this whole spirituality business. It's all about what's going on inside. So to make it very clear, the only problem with sex is the entrenching of an idea that you need something outside of yourself to be complete. So early spiritual schools have described the sex drive, and this is rather heteronormative, I mean, but this is kind of an antiquated idea, but I will give it to you. The idea is that you as a body are identified with a certain polarity. You know, so as you come into a body, you have a certain sex, not quite a gender, but a sex, and call that male. And on the other end of the spectrum, you come into a body and you call that female. So this is really a question of gender. It's more a question of physical sex. And the law of the universe is that all dualities are in this constant push and pull relationship. So opposites attract. They're drawn towards one another. So as long as you think yourself to be a man sexually, you will need your opposite, the woman, and vice versa but you as a spirit are sexless. Virginia Woolf makes the point in the 20th century in her book, A Room of One's Own. She says, in every man is a woman and in every woman is a man. You know, and of course this is still the uh, rather dichotomic di- di- dichotomy of the 20th century conversations about gender. But, uh, you know, and, and it's a bit antiquated. But the idea is that in us is everything. We are all parts of that spectrum all the time. And if we identify with one at the exclusion of any of the others, we are waging psychological warfare with ourselves. We're fragmenting our wholeness into parts. And that's claustrophobic. It doesn't feel good. It's not spiritually satisfying. So um, this is even something that alchemy is very interested in, bringing together the two hemispheres of the brain. You will see it in the tarot card, The Lovers. Adam usually represents the conscious intellectual mind, logic and reason. Eve represents the more intuitive, symbolic, imaginative mind. Both are great. Alone, they can go astray. So they must be brought together. And so alchemy, the language they use, is the marriage of the uh, red lion with the white or bringing together different opposites. In the yoga vocabulary, we say ida and pingala coming together, that resolving of duality, ha-ta yoga, ha meaning sun, ta meaning moon, bring together the sun and moon, you know, resolving duality, that's what it's all about. So until you realize yourself as not just a man, not just a woman, not just anything, but as everything, you will suffer. So the promise of yoga then is practice these disciplines that reify in you such a desire, such, such, a, such a conception of yourself. So here's something, and I will close with this. This practice of continence, celibacy, or control of the sex desire should never be carried out by anyone who is not trained in the proper techniques for transmutation of these experiences. If you just try to shove it down, it will research in ways that are psychologically harmful. Instead, you must practice a few techniques. And I'll give you the few techniques now. The be all end all or the sex transmutation practice par excellence is creativity. You know, so all the ancient yogis interested in not expending their sexual energy Uh, Or in other words, not becoming identified with craving, would every time they experienced sexuality, engage in other forms of creative activity, you know, because in creativity, it's not like you're going out in the world to take something, you're flipping the script, you're sharing something of yourself with the world, you're giving something, you know, so that's one way to harness, to ride the lion, so to speak, you know, to be involved in music, to be involved in art, any, any expression of creativity. That's one way. Another way is through intense meditation. Naturally, when you meditate, and by the way, um, what's her name? Wheels of, ah, Anodea Judith. Anodea Judith talks a little bit about, she did some research with the endocrine system and she talks about how there are uh, the testosterone and estrogen, like gonad hormones, are often suppressed by melatonin and vice versa. So there is a derivative of melatonin called 10-methoxyharmalin. And uh Anodea Judith makes the point in her book, Wheels of Life, that this is the chemical responsible for deep meditative states. 10-methoxyharmalin. It's a derivative of melatonin. And it's inhibited by these... uh gonad hormones, and vice versa. Do you see? So like the more you meditate, the less of us, essentially less, for some of you starting meditation, you'll actually feel more of a sex drive, you know, but as you continue along the path, as you start to, you know, not identify with the mind and body, it'll start to wane away on, on an endocrine level, you know? So that's another way, intense meditation. A third one is intense hatha yoga or asana, so by practicing, and I'm talking like two hours of asana a day, you know, intense asana, um, that can do it for you also. Now, in closing, I must tell you this. I've given you a rather non-duality kind of depiction of, uh, oh, yes, yes, uh, take care, Eva. Thank you so much for coming. It was so nice to see you. Um, good luck tomorrow in your test. <laughs> now, you. I've given you, yes. Of course. I've given you some of the non duality, kind of like, you know, uh, psychological arguments for why you might not want to indulge in sense gratification. I should probably close by giving you um, a little more concrete stuff. Uh, the yoga tradition does see, and, you know, a lot of this tradition was, um, at least in the texts, we get a lot of male teachers. So a lot of the early scriptures were kind of orally composed by male practitioners. So forgive this language, but um, in this rather male-dominated practice of early tantra, there is a discussion of sperm or semen as viryat, meaning the vitality of the body. If you spill the seed, so to speak, you don't have the necessary strength and energy for deeper, more absorbed states of meditation. You know, so it's unclear whether this is only specific to the male sex drive. It seems to be limited to that. Um, and so that was kind of the early ideas. You will find it in Paramahansa Yogananda's talk that you can read in the book, The Divine Romance. So in the first talk that's recorded in that book, Paramahansa Yogananda says one drop of semen is equal to eight drops of blood. He gives that formula. You know, so he says every time you ejaculate, you lose a certain amount of blood, which, of course, um, decreases your vitality, you know, and it draws your energy down, making it harder to get into higher frequency states of meditation. So I'm just putting that there with you. Do with it what you will. You know, that's there. Um, Then Sri Ramakrishna, which you can read in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, advised both men and women to stay away from the sex drive partly because it reified this idea of being incomplete and needing to find completeness in another. Um, And so he would often say to both men and women that the two impediments to spiritual growth unequivocally were lust and greed. Both of these things reinforce the idea that you are not complete. So you need to work to get over them, you know. So what about starting a family, you know, this is the next thing that I will give you. It is not uncommon for an Indian um, marriage to be uh, celibate. You know, they get married, they have sex like once, twice, thrice, have a child, and then they're celibate. You know, <laughs> maybe that's something to do with birth control. I don't know. But it's not uncommon. You will meet these people today in India who aspire to these spiritual ideals of purity and chastity and can exist in a householder situation without... um needing to consummate that relationship, you know, rather diametrically opposed to some of the Western ideals we have around sex as an intimacy tool. You know, so often when a couple is not having sex, we diagnose that as a problem in intimacy. You know, <laughs> there's a problem in that relationship. <laughs> so do that what you will, um, just giving it to you. Um, okay, and one last practice I will give you. This practice comes from Tantra. Last practice, and then we'll close with a story. So in Tantra, um, it gets a very bad rep here in the West. As Gene Heilman likes to say, there's Tantra, which is the traditional practice of 10th century India. And then there is Tantra, the Western equivalent, which is all about prolonging an orgasm, multiple orgasms. (laughs) Tantra is materialism disguised as spirituality because suddenly it's spiritual if you have sex and there's tabla music. I don't know, all of a sudden you burn some incense, you play some Carnatic music, it's spiritual sex. I don't know. Anyway, so delineating tantra, the spiritual lineage from tantra, tantra says you don't need to run away from the world. And this you can find in the Bhagavad Gita too. You can be in the world, but you can use the world to overcome it. So recognize this, tantra is not interested in pleasure at all. It's interested in overcoming your attachment to the mind and body, but it sees the mind and body as legitimate tools for that same end. So if I were to give you a depiction, it's like a fence. The fence is your attachment to mind and body. Before Tantra, we say go around the fence, escape the mind and body, meditate until you're no longer the mind and body, and eventually you'll get across the fence. Tantra says just jump over the damn fence, you know? (laughs) There is a way to experience sensuality that is uh, destructive to that sensuality itself. So when you listen to music with such rapt attention that you dissolve into the experience of listening to music, you dissolve into the flavor of chocolate cake at the tip of your tongue. This in Tantra we call Chanakara or aesthetic rapture. Now, the point of aesthetic rapture is not enjoyment. This I must stress: Tantra is not a path for enhancing sensual enjoyment. And most of the people who practice Tantra, believe it or not, were celibate monks. Uh, they were householders. Some of them, a lot of them were householders, but they were celibate. That must be stressed. You know, um, people like Abhinabha Gupta, Sema Raja, Semaraja, Seema Raja. You know, they were all celibate. <laughs> so in Tantra, there is a practice. It's called. Uh, it's not really a name, but uh, Abhinaba Gupta says every time you experience good lovemaking, after you orgasm, bring your attention to the kanda point. That's the point in your lower belly between your navel and genitals. So after an orgasm, bring your mind to that point and meditate on the feeling of satiety, of being fulfilled, of being satisfied do you see this trick? Tantra is not about meditating on horniness. It's not about becoming hornier or enjoying sex. No, no, no. It's about meditating on that one moment right after you orgasm when there is an absence of the sex impulse. It's for many of us the only time. And for a lot of us, it doesn't last long. You know, (laughs) the orgasm ends three seconds later, you're like, okay, part two. We need to, let's go again. (laughs) But Tantra says, and I I will cite the text for you. I forgot, but I can go and check it and give you the exact citation if you're interested. Remember, everything I say here tonight can be cited and do not take my word for anything. Experience everything for yourself. Just to say. So uh, this Tantra, it says, experience your sexlessness. Meditate on your sexlessness. Internalize that you are the spirit, not the mind, not the body. And the spirit is neither man, neither woman, neither any part of that spectrum. The spirit is beyond all craving. The spirit does not hate, detest or resists craving. It is simply uninvolved with it. You know, so that's the final practice. Now we will close with that story I promised to close with. And it's the story of Shankaracharya. I want you to know that all of these practices, brahmacharya, the yamas, the niyamas, you know, yamas, niyamas, you know, all these practices, um, they are means to an end, my friends. They are not an ends in themselves. They are not absolutely good. They are relatively good. There is no absolute morality in Hinduism. Really, there isn't. There is relative morality as a means to liberation, moksha. When you become an enlightened being, you no longer need to abide by ethical codes of standards. Your actions will naturally be in harmony with all things, and thereby you will be inadvertently ethical. You don't have to try to be ethical, you will be good. So, this is the story Shankaracharya is a famous sage, one of the best sages of our culture, really. And we have a lot of good sages, but he's my favorite, so excuse the bias. (laughs) He's seen as kind of the incarnation of Shiva. He is the non-dualist par excellence. He's one of the founders of non-dualism, actually. And uh, all of non-duality in the world owes its origins to Shankaracharya, who around 700 AD started to comment on a lot of texts like the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads, and he gave non-dual explanations for all of these texts. And I can give you some uh, book recommendations after class for those of you who are interested. Anyway, there's a story about Shankaracharya. He used to walk. you seen the Gandhi movie? Yes, our pastime in India when you're spiritual is walking. We love to walk. We walk up and down India from south to north. And we walk and we visit holy places and we teach spirituality and we debate with Buddhists and we debate with atheists. And that's just what we do. You know, it's our pastime nationally. So Shankaracharya, around 700 AD, was walking up and down, debating with Vaishnavas and Buddhists and materialists. And he used to be followed. You know, Forrest Gump, he ran. (laughs) Similarly, Shankaracharya walked and he would be followed by a crowd of disciples, And they would always follow slightly behind him, you know. So one day, Shankaracharya is walking, and they pass by a winery, not a winery, uh, a grog shop. What do you call it? A a pub, a pub, an inn. He walks by the grog shop, and inside there are some drunkards who see him. And he's bald, he's got his orange robes. he's a monk. And the drunkards say, ''Ah, you fool, you renounce the world, your life is so dry, it's so boring.'' you reading dusty books and meditating all day. If you tasted our wine, ah, then you would live. Then you would know what it is to live. Shankaracharya gave them a sidelong glance and said, fine, I'll try your wine. So he walks into the inn, he takes a jug of wine that's uh, good for like 20 people. Uh, So the story goes, he drinks the whole thing in one swig. Everyone in the pub is speechless. He slams the jug down, smacks his lip and says, nah, meditation is better. Walks out. (laughs) Anyway, his disciples are now in controversy. They're like, oh my God, did you just, did you see what I, Shankaracharya drank wine. Our spiritual ideal just drank wine. Does that mean we can drink wine? And they started to like have this gossip. Shankaracharya, of course, heard them. And so he decided to teach them a lesson. Next, they passed by a blacksmithery, a blacksmith shop. And he said, ah, come, come. And he brought everyone into the blacksmith shop. And then he took the pot of molten steel and he drank all of that, slammed it down, turned to his disciples and said, so you really want to drink what I drink, huh? (laughs) Now, the idea in that story is when you become enlightened, there are absolutely no rules. You can drink whatever you want to drink, eat whatever you want to eat, do whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. You are beyond the mind, beyond the body. But until then, there are certain functional and relative truths that are helpful and conducive to you in achieving those ends. And that's what celibacy or brahmacharya is for. Brahma or Brahman is the non-dual Tao. It's the conscious principle God, if you will. Acharya means teacher. Brahmacharya translates to the teachings of Brahman. And what is the highest teaching of Brahman, my friends? Self-sufficiency. You are complete as you are. You need not reach out. If ever you reach out, let it be to give. Do not take. Why should you take, you who own everything? Where do you need to go you who contain all places within yourself. Why argue with others what you are and what you aren't? You are all the things. And so with that, let us close, my friends, with a final Om, as we always do.